Welcome to Season 6 of The Farcast, bringing you insight, Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Sorry, folks, I missed a week there. A little personal issue comes up when you get to be my age and uh, you just miss. Sorry about it, but we're back. We're back. We're back. Here we go. Uh, markets have continued to hold in pretty well around that 4,000 level, slightly above. This has been a pretty strong market, good, strong rally. Economic data have continued to be strong. Message from the Fed continues to be strong, but the market doesn't want to listen. Jay Powell says we're going to raise rates at a slower pace, and boom, the algos go nuts, and buyers are going in, and levels are going up, and it's a rally. Put your party hat on. Except... Jay Powell says we're nowhere near close to taming inflation and we're not about to stop. So it doesn't matter to me, and I don't think it should matter to you, if they raise 75 basis points, 50 basis points, if they keep raising and say that they're going to keep raising. I don't know if Wall Street's looking for a pivot. I don't know if Wall Street's looking for them to change their mind. They keep saying it ain't going to happen. I'm inclined to believe Jay Powell and the Fed so far. So therefore, therefore, uh, we have seen this market make some higher highs on these bear market rallies. What does it mean? And will we test the old lows? Will we see new lows? Or is this just a milling around time where we're going to be off to the races and new highs and big new bull markets? I always ask smart people. Therefore, I go to Jim Urio from TJM Institutional Services. He's one of your Farcast fan favorites. That's not easy to say, by the way, at five o'clock at night. Farcast fan favorite, one of your favorites. Uh, Urio is a smart guy and a great friend. Hey, Jim, welcome back to the Farcast. Thank you, Michael. I was going to ask you those questions. I'm the one who's got to answer them. Yeah, that's see, because <laughs> okay. it's my show and I get okay. to ask I get to ask the question when it's your when I went on your show, you asked me questions. I mean, you know, but Indeed. but You're I'll right. chime in because I'm opinionated and, and, you know, it's hard to keep me quiet for too long. What do you think? So here's what I think is that I, the one thing I disagree with you on, I think the Fed has to be particularly Jay Powell has to keep his rhetoric strong right up until the moment that rhetoric has to change and become weak. So I think I that that it's like hold hold it's Braveheart all over again. And I think he's saying things. And I think I personally think within the next month to six weeks, there is a pause, a clear pause. It may even come after this, after this meeting. I think that, um, that the number, the marquee numbers we've seen the last three, let's call it two NFP numbers and a retail sales numbers. All of them had something in common. All three of them looked good on the headline. And then when you drill down it falls apart a little bit. The NFP is particularly interesting to me because two numbers in a row and the establishment number says we've created 560,000 jobs in the last two months. Right. The household survey says we've lost 440,000 jobs in the last two months. Right. This is a you know a million job divergence, as you know. And, and, and one of the reasons for people who don't understand, one of the reasons the establishment survey, like if they call me and I say, yeah, I work at a restaurant, yeah, I trade, yeah, I do media, they count that as three jobs. If the household survey just calls and says, are you working or you're not? So they don't count them as three, they count them as one. But anyway, there is this divergence. And according to Steph Pomboy, who's done the research, um, she says that when there's a divergence to this level and it resolves itself, it resolves itself to the household survey, not the establishment survey. But anyway, when we saw that number on Friday, 
that's what seemed to happen. Stock market went down. Uh, uh, and, and later in the day, as we started the rumblings about the household survey, all of a sudden the stock market came back. And I know it's kind of paradoxical to people that it wasn't as good a news as people thought it was. So the stock market made back its losses. And this is the dystopian, weird ass world we live in, where the stock market genuinely wants some good, bad news, particularly in the labor market, so they can convince themselves that the Fed is near uh, closing its books on this rate cycle. Does any of that make sense? It all makes sense. How close do you think the Fed is to closing their books on the rate cycle? The Fed says they're not close to closing their books. And, you know, a lot of the people that want them to are still looking for them to start easing before the end of 2023. And the Fed's sort of saying, rub a lamp. Where do you come out? Hold it. Is rub a lamb a real, that's a real saying, or did you make that up? Not rub a rub- lamb, rub a lamp. <laughs> Rub a oh, that lamp. Makes total, that Rub makes a lamp. Way more you know, sense. you people in the Midwest always go to sheep. I mean, I feel like I'm in Scotland or something. Stop it, Uriel. You know, this is a family <laughs> I, program here. I, I thought it was a regional colloquialism. I was going to start using it for sure. Rub let's, a lamp. <laughs> Rub a lamp to get a genie. I'm with you on this. I'm, you okay, go. back to markets. I am one of these people who believes that. Um, the, okay, will you give me this? If we are disagreeing on this, will you give me this? That up until the moment that they come out and say there's going to be a pause, they have to keep a, a united front, a strong front, even the day before, right? There's no point in pausing unless you keep you're, you have people thinking you're not going to pause until you do. Will you give me that point? No, I'm only going to give you half of that one because... I think that they've got to wade into it the way they've been wading into these slowdowns, the way they I think they will wade slowly, uh, you know, get knee deep out of the water before they tell you they're getting out of the water. So I think they've got to broadcast it and say we're going to be slowing the pace of increases and we're going to be studying this and that. I don't think that they stop dead. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, by the time they go to neutral, everybody, I think, is going to be so sick of them saying, we're still considering, we're still waiting, uh, because I think the last thing they want to do is shock the markets to the upside when they're trying to tame inflation. That is such a funny thing, because I agree with you on that point, that they, okay. I think every time the stock market has a couple really, really solid days in a row, I can just feel the Fed getting nervous about it. Because remember, part of what they want to do to destroy demand is to destroy some asset prices, take wealth out of the market, and create slack in the labor market. Because remember, Cost push inflation is one thing. And that's, you know, where the input costs are driving right. up prices. But the wage price spiral is what they truly want to avoid. And I think their eyes are glued to the labor market. And I think until we see some cracks in the labor market, they are going to keep the pedal to metal. But the, what we disagree with is I think we've already seen some cracks in the labor market. And they're the worst kind of cracks. They're cracks that we're not sure if the Fed can see or not. And I'm talking about the household survey. I'm talking about hours worked. That last number, too. You know, uh, wages went up, hourly wages went up, but hours worked went down. A lot of times that's a precursor to the crack showing itself. So I believe those cracks are there and I think they're under the drywall. I think that the Fed wants to see unemployment at five and a half percent. I don't know if that's exactly the number, but basically at around five and a half percent, you can see salary wage increases, wage inflation equals equals CPI inflation. And that's what they want. They don't want an outsized driver of that inflation because it is persistent and it is insidious to your point. So uh, we've started to see some layoffs. We've started to see the hiring freezes. We've started to see that sort of thing, certainly in tech world. 
But will it continue? I'm curious, seeing a lot of people going, oh, we're going to have a slow roll. It's still a soft landing. It's all happening just the way they want. Are you really going to give them credit, Jim Murillo, to actually pull off a soft landing? Because I sure as hell am not. No, I, I'm not either. I don't believe there'll be a soft landing. I do believe there's going to be a recession. And I think that the recession, I think it was preordained back a year and a half ago when they made the decision to keep the pedal to the metal, despite the fact that the housing market was inarguably on fire and they kept buying mortgage-backed bonds. I think they realized they made a mistake and now they got to break it up. So I think we're going to have a, a recession. But before, before I leave that point, is that all recessions are not created equal. In 2007, the recession that came, yes. we, needed, we needed to unwind decades of buildup in an illiquid asset, and it was a terrible, terrible recession. I believe this is going to be a long, slow slog, and I believe that it's going to be fueled by the fact that the federal government seems to have no interest in doing anything to tame inflation. As a matter of fact, everything they do seems to be increasing inflation, so it's going to be this push-pull. That being said, the Fed part of it I still think within the next quarter they pause. I don't think they're they're easing rates by the end of next year necessarily, like the market says. No. But I do think there's a pause. Well, okay. Um, pause meaning uh, we're going to go a meeting without a hike, but we might have a hike at the next meeting. Is that what you mean? Or sure, you mean stop always, altogether? Yeah, they'll say they'll always say that now it's meeting to meeting. But I think when when you when we all realize that there's a lag effect to seeing what the damage rate hikes or the, the good that rate eases can do, you know, that that lag is six to nine months. So we all know that if they stopped raising after the next 50 basis point hike, that we're probably going to see some you know, buildings collapse and some fires rise, economically speaking. So if they pause, they won't have to re-up it, in my opinion. Again, it was a supply chain issue, too. So if the supply chain is fixing itself, and I know that over the last two months, all of a sudden that problem has gone from getting much better to starting to inch worse again because of the problems in China. But I do think overall it's probably going to get better. And, 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 it, and, it, and it may. But I think you and I are not too, on two very different pages here in, in what we expect. We both expect recession. I'm never going to guess whether a recession is mild or anything else. It doesn't look like a draconian recession to me that's coming. But average recession, you see stocks go down 30.5%. You see S&P 500 earnings contract 20%. We've still got you know, facts set looking for earnings gains in 2023 and 2024 of 6% per year. Well, there's nothing in there for an earnings contraction in the S&P if we go into recession. So that tells me that markets are still priced too high and they're going to contract and go down and then they'll go back up. And this is a normal market cycle. The thing that I keep telling people, Jim, is recessions happen. They're normal. Markets expand. They contract. We've been doing it all of our lives. I don't understand the panic that goes along with this. Give me a word on that. And then I want to get back to your last trading conversation you and I had about 3850. No good, because I want to get to that, too. And I agree completely. I sold puts today of where I want to buy the market. You know, I'm down like 35%. I don't think it's going to get there, but I think it's a safe bet to, to do that. Um, I, I think that it's all part of the normal thing. I think that people, when you tell them there's a recession coming, I think the normal thing people think is, okay, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to pull in risk? No, the time to pull in risk is probably long past. This is just a normal thing. Um, yeah, right. I agree with you. It's nothing nothing to absolutely panic about. Before we get you out of here, you had sort of said before that you were looking for the uh, S&P to go through 3850. If it did, you were all in. 
that worked out well for you as we have sort of turned tail and we're back down around where are we 3900 today 3941 if we get back to 3850 what's your next plan so so what i had said before and this is a couple of weeks back there's settlement over that 3850 level and i will believe that the bear market's over a weekly settlement i did believe that the bear market was over i played from the long side but again i didn't put all my chips on one thing and i take take profits and and put in hedges along the way now i think something different I think if we settle this week below, let's call it 3880 uh, or something, it seems to me that this, the, the trend of the, well, then it will be a bear market rally. I'm not convinced of that yet. But if we settle this week below it, then I'll turn tail and run and try to look on more short positions than long. Um, so there's nothing, I have zero problem with being wrong. When I said I thought that the bear market was over, I still think it is. But right now I'm being tested and I will I will be wrong if it starts feeling comfortable below that thirty nine hundred level. Yeah, you'll be wrong, but you've got your roadside barriers, your jersey walls on both sides of your trades, and you've got a very clear discipline. And that's why I don't do this, ladies and gentlemen. And Urio is actually successful at it and has been for decades. Uh, but uh, so when I can't do something, I don't. I do it my way. I I, I think this is a bear market rally. Uh, and I think it's a bear market rally because the Fed hasn't finished. And until the Fed finishes changing the price of money, uh, I think all bets are off. But we'll 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 watch and see how that happens. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Murio, uh, TJM Institutional Services, a veteran trader and a fabulous voice on television and business media all over the country and indeed around the world, a sought after public speaker. You're having an event. Call Murio. Hey. Far and Uriel will show up together. We can do this actually in person. Uh, it's a great act and your folks are going to like us, I promise. Jim Uriel, thanks so much. We're going to be right back with Dan Mahaffey. Please stay with us. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of The Farcast. Please share us with friends and colleagues. And now, back to your host... Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, Matt Leffingwell, filling in for, of course, our great friend Dan Mahaffey this week. Here we are in season six of the Farcast, ladies and gentlemen. Matt Leffingwell, one of our first guests, political insight insiders, experts, a go-to guy and a voice for radio. You, if you haven't heard him before, wait till you hear him. He is a partner at the Tiger Key, Creek Group. Do it again. A partner at the Tiber Creek Group. That's that work. That's okay. Yeah. And uh, he, where he runs the appropriations practice. Uh, you need to get something done in D.C. You call Leffingwell. Welcome back, Matt. Hey, it's really good to be back here, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Was I right about the voice, ladies and gentlemen? I was right about the voice. <laughs> I wish I got paid for it. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. We can talk about that. We can All talk. Right. That's good. Uh, Matt. Okay. We had an election in. Uh, we had an election in Georgia last night. Uh, of course, uh, Senator Warnock uh, retained his seat. The incumbent retained his seat. Herschel Walker, not so much. Herschel Walker was a Trump-backed candidate. And the Trump-backed candidates didn't have a very good scorecard on this round of midterm elections. Is this a complete repudiation of Donald Trump? Is uh, that whole Trump era over with, or is he? does he still have some life left? And then I'm going to ask you what that means to Washington and influence and versus conservatives now on Capitol Hill. But talk to me about President Trump first and what you took from this election in Georgia. 
I, you know, I think it, I would think it was the election overall. I think the not only the election in Georgia, but the um, but how poorly the Republicans ended up performing in the midterms when there were very high expectations that they would they would have massive margins in the House and at least take the majority in the Senate. However, I think the the ding on um, Trump, the biggest ding on Trump are poor candidates, including including Herschel Walker, flawed candidates who have, uh, you know, a lot a lot going on in their trash cans and, you know, ha- haven't been able to clear it. There was poor for, uh, fundraising numbers. And yes, I think Trump is being ultimately being held responsible for this. I think the 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 uh, the establishment Republicans I talked to are quite like quietly cheering. I think this, in addition to the uh, like the mounting legal troubles for the president and just frankly, like sloppy mistakes, such as having Kanye West and a white supremacist for dinner uh, that it's just sloppy politics and an event but he will always have a core base the question is whether like whether people like uh, Ron DeSantis are over are able to attract them enough with their own brand of conservatism and, and push Trump to the side and you know will can he continue to be that Ross Perot spoiler going forward too as you get closer to election time and divide the party even further seems to be a concern and speaking of a divided party it seems that Kevin McCarthy now is uh, perhaps not a shoe in for speaker of the house can you tell us about that and why that's right. I mean, there is a there is a far right faction who can never extract enough uh, concessions from uh, Republican leadership in the House. And Kevin McCarthy's leadership style has uh, proven to be one in which he he plays more of the whack-a-mole with his conference, which is trying to put out small fires here and there instead of instead of just taking on, uh, you know, a, a strong leadership role and telling his conference how it is. So therefore, groups like such as the Freedom Caucus again have a lot of leverage, even though they're a very, they're a small fraction of the overall Republican right. conference. And now you have uh, individuals such as Matt Gates saying he won't vote for uh, McCarthy on the floor as speaker and is running his own race for speaker. Now the margins are so small that's where this becomes relevant. Um, there are, have been some uh, some uh, accommodations McCarthy has made to the Gates crowd. There's not a crowd. I would say it's a cluster. Um, but uh, it's a cluster. But it, but, <laughs> the whole damn thing a, looks like a cluster a small, to me. Small and mighty cluster. But, uh, um, you know, I think the, the consensus is right now that he does end up getting it. It'll be a very ugly uh, conversation on the floor. Uh, it'll be embarrassing for the party and it'll be you know embarrassing for House Republican leadership. But um, if he were to fail, I think popular thought is that everybody pivots to somebody like Steve Scalise, who is a who's been is a very popular uh, figure in the House Republican conference set to be the majority leader, which he he sought, he has sought out and wants to do that job. But if he is needed to fill fill the shoes of speaker on the floor, if things just fall apart, then they'll move to, to a consensus candidate like that. What are the implications here for policy if Kevin McCarthy stays by a slim margin or Scalise comes in uh, or if Matt Gates were to be successful? What does that mean? Does that mean anything different comes out of uh, the Congress uh, for, you know, as we on Wall Street are trying to figure out, is this going to change the ground underneath our feet 
or are we just going to get more of the same? And does it not matter which one of them is Speaker I, of the House? Yeah, no, I don't think it matters. I think you hear all, like anybody who's looking to to move up, you know, leaning far to the right. I mean, McCarthy has been uh, he just was on uh, Fox News the other night saying that he doesn't want anybody in his conference to work with Democrats. Well, that's a, you know, a very uh, hard line right message. Um, my expectation for your listeners is that two things have to get done uh, in this next Congress. One is um, appropriations. You have to fund the government. And then second is they have to uh, deal with the debt limit. Those yeah. both both things have consequential effects on the markets and uh, in consumers. And so I think that, uh, you know, given those two things are going to be the only things that are ultimately get done. I don't think people will feel a lot, uh, you know, from any other efforts the Republican conference make. There will be a lot of, you know, investigations, oversight into the administration, embarrassing articles that the Republicans generate for the administration. But that's about it. Tell me about the Democrats. I've seen in the Washington Post last week, there's been a, and in the past couple of weeks, the Post has given a different list of likely candidates for president for 2024. Uh, Joe Biden is still number one if he goes for it. Number two now is no longer Kamala Harris. It is now Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Has Kamala Harris fallen that far? And is there a chance now that Joe Biden will actually run for president again? I think Kamala Harris is like taking on a very traditional uh, vice presidential role, which is not being in the spotlight and really having like the, you know, the spotlight be on Joe Biden, who was elected really to, to reestablish uh, stability in, in a lot of different areas of our of our, of, of the U.S., um, How's that I, working out for him? <laughs> well, I'm I mean, just wondering. I mean, compared to what? I mean, compared to what? <laughs> but yeah, uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, my too. gut right now. I mean, Democrats uh, squirm when I asked them this question. My, I was with a couple of Democrat fundraisers last night and asked them, and. Uh, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, my best guess is that Biden ends up running again. Um, I think, really? you know, yeah, I do. Okay. And, I, I just don't. I, I mean, the presidential election basically started right after midterms ended, you know. And I it, is Donald Trump the candidate for the Republicans? I don't think so. I think it's Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, and will Trump be enough of a spoiler, or can the party kind of gather behind DeSantis? And will he? Can he beat Joe Biden as an incumbent? I think he could beat Joe Biden as an incumbent, uh, but I don't think he gets the the party nom. No, who gets the party nom? I think DeSantis gets the party nom. I think DeSantis okay. is a much That's more- That's what I mean. Can DeSantis beat Biden? Yes, yes, I do think DeSantis can beat Biden. I think he is, he's a much more refined version of Trump. And he is smart and uh, he has learned from Trump's mistakes. And I think he has all the all the components that could, could help him win a general. Matt Levingwell is a partner at the Tiber Creek Group in Washington. Uh, where he runs appropriations. He is a Washington's insider insider. He's smart as hell, and he's a great friend of mine. Thank you, Matt, very much for being with us on the Farcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. We're glad you were with us. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with Jenny Harrington from Gilman Hill Advisors. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc., Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. 
Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Hero's work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Hero's mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the Farcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. We're so glad you're with us. Terrific forecast so far. We've we've heard uh, from Jim Urio. Very interesting to hear what he's thinking about markets. Was he wrong, or is he going to be wrong about the end to the bear market? Perhaps this is a bear market rally, says Urio. He's looking for more data and information. I was very interested to hear, and we're going to bring him back, and we're going to talk to him about that. Then Matt Leffingwell, of course, insider of Inside Washington, a lobbyist in Washington D.C talking about all things, including that Georgia election. Fascinating always to talk to Matt. And now, a Farcast fan favorite, uh, one of your favorites and certainly one of my favorites. Uh, Jenny Harrington is chief executive officer at Gilman Hill Asset Management up in Connecticut. She's a CNBC contributor. She is a regular panelist on the Halftime Report with Scott Wapner on CNBC. And she's one of my great buddies. Jenny, welcome back to the Farcast. Thanks so much for having me. We are very glad you're here and looking forward to learning about what you think's going on in the markets. We've got a Fed that says, you know, uh, we're going to perhaps we're going to slow the rate of change. We're going to slow the rate of increases, but make no mistake, we're going to keep increasing. And the market goes out and throws a party and says, see, they're going to lower the increases. How is it the market keeps insisting upon what the market wants to hear and ignoring what the Fed's saying? And does the Fed have a messaging problem or does the market have a listening problem? Well, you know how they always say art imitates life? Well, I think investing imitates life. So when you say something like that, you know, the market only hears what it wants to hear and adjusts it accordingly. Isn't that just human nature? And, and what is the market? The market's a reflection of behavior and of expectations. And we kind of hear what we want to hear and take what we want to take. And I think we as Americans are a, are a, um overwhelmingly optimistic society. And I think as investors, you have to be an optimist to be a function, to be a successful investor. Um, the market trends up. If you look at a hundred year history of the market, there have been terrible times, but it's had an eight to 10% return. And if you fight that by being overly pessimistic or overly negative, you're not going to win. So I think the best investors are by their nature optimists. I think yes. Americans are by their nature optimists. And I think society, humans, we hear what we want to hear. And we make you know, what one we thing make I've never been able to do really is successfully short a stock. I, I don't have the stomach for it. I've tried it. I've done it. It makes me crazy. Okay. Even when even when the stock's going down, I, I can't, I don't have any stomach. I just want to say, okay, I'll cover it. I'll buy it back. I made my 15%. And and it's just it's for me, it's kind of a stupid thing to do. Um, but when when you say that op long-term optimism pays off, 
entirely agree with that. But what about when that long-term optimism runs into a short-term trend driven by the Federal Reserve? Well, I think that then depends on on what kind of investor you are. And this is where, you know, you and I can be kind of a bit of an echo chamber for each other because mm-hmm. we're philosophically so so aligned. Yes. And I think our clients are probably all in the same camp too, which is they work with us and they listen to us and listen to the podcast because they hear what, want to hear what we have to say because we're all philosophically aligned and that we're not looking at this for a one or a two year time frame, but we're all looking right. at it for a three, five, 10. And so one of the things that really annoys me is the short-term orientation of the media. I'm always being asked, oh, any changes to your portfolio? Oh, how are you positioning your portfolio for if we have a soft landing next year? You know, how yeah. are you positioning it for if we have a recession? Like, I don't. I you know, don't. The portfolio strategy has been set since 2001 when I started it. The portfolio yeah. strategy is to generate, in, in my case, a 5% or better dividend income yield and deliver that income through thick and thin. You manage broader portfolios for your clients and you put an asset allocation in place that gets them through the best of times and gets them through the worst of times and lets them march on. So I think when you say, how do we deal with this short-term noise from the Fed? We put our heads down, we grit our teeth, we bear it and we get through it. Yeah, I listen to the folks uh, come on saying, well, I'm pairing this position. I sold that last week. I'm nibbling. Nibbling is the one I love. I'm nibbling on this. I've started to nibble. And I'm thinking, no, I do a ton of research. I have analysts who have their CFAs and have been doing this for over 20 years and MBAs, and they tear these companies apart. And we study them for months. And when we decide we're going to take a position, we hold it for an average of six years and some of them a lot longer. And we don't nibble and we don't sell and we don't do this. We benefit from the strong fundamentals of the companies and let them grow. And and um, so I'm I'm totally with you on that. And it's how I've made money over the long term. But when I look at folks uh, uh, who are looking at the short term markets and folks who come to me with cash, I say I want to follow a discipline and maybe we can dollar cost average in. But the whole point is to get in and stay in. This is not a, I've never seen anybody really make a lot of money with trading. I mean, maybe, you know, Jim Urio was on in the first segment. That's what he does professionally. And I I believe him when he tells me he makes money doing it. I just feel like he's something of a unicorn. I mean, like I would pay tickets to go see him, you know, work in his office because I don't, I really don't think, I think it's really rare. Not many people can do that. I I agree. And that's why you, that's why there's that Buffettism that says, um, what is it? Money transfers from the impatient to the patient. And what are you as a long-term investor? You are a patient person. Sure. And, and that's to me, frankly, the biggest asset I have is my unbelievable patience and the ability to tune out this kind of noise and just get through it. But an interesting thing too, is when I say I set the portfolio strategy and that's what it is in perpetuity for the, for the portfolio I manage, the dividend income strategy. We also have a discipline growth strategy. Um, but, and I know you don't like me to say individual stocks, so I'll talk around this one, but it's interesting because I was on worldwide exchange this morning with Seema Modi and she was saying, you know, these three CEOs at some CEO conference yesterday, and one was a bank CEO and one was an industrial CEO. And I can't remember who the other one was, but she said, they're all painting a very negative picture out there. Yes. Um, does that upset you? And I said, no, because, because the, the markets and stocks right now are moving asynchronously. 
And so while you might have a bank CEO seeing quite a miserable outlook, you've got the airline CEOs saying, hey, if I weren't forced to be on CNBC right now, recession wouldn't be in my dialogue. Because what I'm seeing is fantastic, right? And I think that's real. And so we need to remember that too. Not everything moves at once. And so while the strategies are the same, if you're a growth manager, your strategy is the same. If you're a dividend income manager, your strategy is the same. The companies that you hold aren't necessarily the same, but we've always seen that. Opportunities always created. And wait, before we move on to another subject, can we just talk about shorting and being bearish for one sec? Because the thing on that is the math doesn't work, right? If you are long a stock, if you are long a stock, you have a maximum loss of 100% if it goes to zero and you have an infinite gain potential. If you are short a stock, the math is the opposite. If you are short, you have a maximum gain of 100%. Okay, unless you're doing options, but just straight shorting. And you have infinite loss potential. Like you can lose your short, you can lose so badly. So I think it's just an interesting thing to think of how unbalanced the long versus short mathematical equation is. So to me, that that's why I've always, and I'm terrible at it too. I'm just- I ran into an 80-year-old, uh, he was around 80 years old man about five or six years ago uh, who- was kind of aggressive in his portfolio. He understood the fundamentals and he had a significantly large short position in Netflix. And he had the position because of the fundamentals, because there were no fundamentals in Netflix Mm -hmm. six years ago. It was awful. And he said, this is like a Ponzi scheme. There's no there, there, there are no fundamentals. This has to come down. Well, it kept going up and he had it on margin. He was in his eighties and I railed against his personal representative stockbroker and said, look, this is irresponsible. I sat with his wife and his daughter and said, I'm telling you, this is Russian roulette beyond Russian roulette. You've got to close out this position. They said, well, look at the money we lose right now. I said, yes, close out half of it right now and close out the other half in a week. He has no business in his 80s you and your family risking your net worth this way. It just, uh, and you know, at my age, Jenny, I don't give a damn, really, whether I whether I <laughs> piss off somebody, I'm going to tell them the truth. And if I think it's just totally, totally stupid, I'll try and say totally stupid in a nice way. But if you don't hear totally stupid, I'm not doing it right. <laughs> and another reason why we're friends. That's fantastic. Um, but you bring up an important concept, which is the concept of permanent loss. And that's something that's been very much on my mind right now too, which is permanent loss. And he put his family in a situation where there could be permanent loss. I think the people who are playing in the ARC fund-like space so that the technology companies that were truly on fumes with no fun, with really no fundamentals, where they're now down 90% on positions, that's permanent loss. And so I was thinking about it. I think I saw some headline where one of the little high flyers was up like 50% in the past week. And I was thinking, yeah, but it would need to be up like 5,000% from here just to get back to where it was, where most people are paying for it. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of my success as a portfolio manager is that the smartest investment decisions I've made are not really in what I've bought, but what I haven't bought. Because what oh, yeah. I don't buy are, are what I generally don't invest in are, are securities that can create permanent loss, like yep. really damaging, insidious, irrecoverable loss. And um, and so I, I think about that more and more as we've seen the cryptos collapse and the high the, and the nosebleed valuations collapse, I think. You know, so it stinks that I had, you know, that I stuck it out in dividend. It doesn't stink. I don't mean that seriously, but it was right. tough to stick it out in dividend stocks right. for the past, not the last year and a half, 
two years now, the dividends have really outperformed. But for the three and five years before that, when the relative performance was so much more lackluster than the broader market. But here we are. And it comes back around. You know, I've said for years, if you find a decent manager who's thoughtful and has a well-articulated discipline, that manager will do well if they stay consistent to their discipline over time. And I don't care whether they're small cap, large cap, growth value, whatever they are, if they've got a clear discipline and they're going to stick to it and not have style drift and not get pulled away emotionally, they ought to be a successful, they'll have a successful part of their cycle. I want us to go back to one other thing you said, because this is this is really a pet peeve of mine, and, and I'm a little hot already about it. <laughs> These managers who show up every few years and play momentum as if they found, you know, some sort of, of, of uh, gold uh, somewhere. Uh, and, and they'll play momentum and they'll play momentum in the highest beta, meaning highest risk, ladies and gentlemen, ways when they've got a market as their tailwind. And the damn thing goes up and it works. It works when you take a lot of risk in a hot market. It works. And they claim genius. They claim to be the hottest thing since sliced bread. OK, they they have uh, figured it all out. They're going to turn anything that they want. They've got the Midas touch. They're going to turn it all to gold. And when it goes down, they lose 70 percent. They lose 90 mm-hmm. percent. And all of a sudden, you don't hear about them anymore. Some of them you're still hearing about now. And damned if I know why. But I'm telling you, there is a discipline. If you listen to Jenny and she does fundamental research and you listen to other guests on this show, uh, Jim Labenthal um, and and my colleagues at Farm Miller. I mean, there's real research done here. We have a discipline. And this other high flying headline seeking stuff is nothing more than that. And you follow those people uh, the shiny, bright object at your own peril. I promise, Jenny. I'm going to move on here. I'm sorry, but I had wait, to wait, wait. But can I riff off of that for a sec? Please, because you know, it lights me up. Absolutely, lights me up. And it's similar to that. Is at the end of last year, and you hear that you've heard this for the past several years, which is, oh, and we have 2021's you know list of top hedge fund holdings. And guess what they were? <laughs> they were the fang stocks. So it just says to me, oh, you're such a lemming. All of all, you know, so many of these hedge funds got in saying, hey, we're doing something really unique. We have a really unique strategy. We have some special sauce. And that's why we're going to charge you these huge. No, you don't. Charge- no, they don't. And, no, they and don't. then it's and it's your point that that they all kind of lemming on and chase the momentum and then they disappear. But at the same time, they've charged, I think really highway robbery-esque fees. So, so that's my that's my riff off of um <laughs> my my partner Taylor McGowan coined a phrase oh 15 or 20 years ago that I love. Uh he's Taylor McGowan's so so smart uh and so disciplined. Uh, so disciplined as an investor. He said, you know, a lot of advisors talk about exploiting market inefficiencies. And that's almost an oxymoron if you believe in efficient markets. They want to talk about exploiting market inefficiencies. He said, we have found an inefficiency that we believe we can exploit at Farm Miller in Washington. And that is the inefficiency of time. Because mm-hmm. Wall Street is so short-term focused, right. we will exploit the inefficiencies of their short-term focus. The inefficiency of time can make us all money. Um, so uh, we we agree we we agree with you, Jenny. Which We've is got- funny. Sorry, yeah. it's funny though because that's really just a different way of saying yes. money transfers from the impatient to the patient. It's uh, and I wrote that I wrote that down when you said it. I don't think I'd heard Buffett say that, and I love. It may not be Buffett. I may be misquoting. 
Buffett's probably never said, you know, half of the things. Yogi Berra said that. He says, you know, I've never <laughs> said half of the things that I say that I think I've said. Uh, <laughs> one of those, which was another great Yogi Berra line because it was totally botched. Um, we have, uh, so we've got this year coming up where it looks like people are going into recession. I think the, there was an economist from the conference board on this morning that said a survey of CEOs uh, recently about the likelihood of a recession in 2023 has gone from 95% to 98%, 95% to 98%. And Steve Leesman looks up, he goes, wow, really? <laughs> I'm thinking, what in the hell is the difference? Except I'm suddenly worried because if 98% of anybody thinks something's going to happen, I'm just in, you know, instinctively ready to take the other side of that bet, except on this one. I do agree with him on this one. What do you think about that? Well, I think there's a lot of nuance to the word recession. I, I had an interesting interaction with Ed Yardeni where um where I asked him, have you studied, have you studied um actually the correlation between recessions and bear markets? And Ed Yardeni keeps saying two things that I think are really important. One, he keeps saying, if we have a recession, this is going to be the most highly anticipated recession in history. Yes. The other thing he's been talking about a lot is the concept of rolling recessions. So we've already had a recession in semiconductors. We've had a recession or we're in the middle of a recession in the beginning, probably a recession in housing. Um, we've had a recession in PCs. We are in an expansion in airline travel and hotel. Um, so, so things are moving, again, to the asynchronous comment, things are moving asynchronously. And so I think, I personally think odds are that we do have a recession, but the duration, the magnitude of it, that's what's really going to create different levels of pain. And to your point exactly, there is nothing more contrary than a 98% vote. Honest to God. Yeah, you know how they always say the one day when you when you when you're expecting a baby, you know, yeah. the one day you know your kid's not going to be born on is the due date that they give you. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's kind of the same thing. And everyone's respect uh, expecting this so much that even if it comes, has the market already anticipated that? And the work that Ed did, which was really helpful and I really appreciate it, was to say, in general, bear markets um, last quite a bit longer past the end of a recession. That's right. But I would argue this one's very different because of this incredible anticipation. I mean, literally my mother asked me about, oh, aren't we going to have a recession? My yeah. mom has no idea that there's a, okay, I hope she doesn't listen to this, but she has no idea that stocks and equities are the same thing or that bonds and fixed income are like, she doesn't get this at all. So if she's asking me about a recession and she asked me about it months ago, it's yeah. really well accounted for to some degree. Yes. And then we can get into what does the market do? What, are what do investors do? We look out six to, six to 12 months and try to anticipate what's coming and adjust for that. So when we look out and we see retailer stocks down 40%, what have they done? They've assumed that consumers laying down and die. That may be accounted for already. So I, I just think, I don't know. I'm not, even if we have a recession, I'm not, I'm not like scared of it. Right. You know, I just kind of look at everything that's going on in 2022 as a very healthy reconciliation and recalibration. Um, and then that gets into your, the managers who stick with their disciplines do the best. Why is that? Because everything reverts to the mean. Yes. Super long-term trends and growth and super long-term trends and value. So long-term returns and growth values, small cap, mid cap, they all return about the international domestic. It all returns about the same over a 20 year period. So yep. the only way you really get screwed is if you keep changing strategies at the wrong times. 
Well, and if you keep changing your stock positions, the only thing I can guarantee, if you're even halfway good at it, is a lot of capital gains tax you're going to pay too. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, as I hold a position for six years, I'm deferring the those capital gains and I'm yeah. compounding on that tax deferred capital gain. I, I don't understand why people are so desperate to pay those. Jenny, let's finish uh, here. Um, maybe with your observations about, Jenny and I are on a... Uh, on a board or on a uh, investment committee uh, for a significant fund. It's well over a billion dollars. We have an investment consultant and Jenny and I listen to the reports and we discuss this and we work for this institution. It's a a charitable institution, not for profit. And so it's over a billion dollars and we do this, one of the things we get to do as we volunteer our time. We've been hearing managers and we've been seeing the performance move and change. And and, and I think it's doing pretty well uh, in in general. Um, Certainly the 20 year track record has been very good. What observations would you have that you think the the approach of those that committee and perhaps some of the success that that account has had? How does that translate for Fred and Ethel and other investors who are listening would say, I'd like to learn from a successful institution. Well, I think what surprised me when I joined that, because I joined it recently and you've, you've been on it for a while, what surprised me was that it was all active managers. And a lot, what we've seen in a lot of investment committees and a lot of investment advisors, um, we've seen everybody push towards indexing and passive investing so hard. And that worked for a while, but I think I think the ship sailed too far. And so the rising tide that, ra- that raised all ships over the past decade, that's really changed now, really, really changed. I actually wrote something this morning that um, that I said, let's see, crypto mining is dead and stock mining is in. And what I mean by that is that it is time. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> um, it. it is time to start to mine for stocks. You can't just buy the S&P, which you've been no. able to do. For, you can't just buy the NASDAQ. You can't just buy software stocks or technology stocks. And so with this investment committee that we're on, I, it, it's done extremely well historically, but I suspect that it will have an even better next 10 years than previous 10 years because of its positioning towards active managers. Because what do active managers do? You know, and I know it sounds cheesy, but I'll say it all the same. Like they mine for stocks. They're constantly looking for individual stocks. They're not just making big, frankly, to me, lazy, broad-based, thematic things, which is, oh, software should do well. Well, guess what? There's an enormous difference between, look at how good I'm getting at the forecast. I, I haven't said a single stock name. They're getting so good at saying, hey, this data security software stock is totally necessary. And this relationship management stock, like they can just, you know, the CIOs are going to put their money, if they have limited money, they're going to put it into data security. So there's there's huge divergences out there right now. And I think active management is actually where it's at. Even I, as an active manager, had been more in the camp of passive and indexing for the better part of the past 10 years for, for huge endowment-like situations. But right. I think that game's changed. I think I think, like I said, I think the ship sailed too far. Yeah. And well, but it's still a matter, as Jenny said at the very beginning, of having a very clear discipline, sticking with the discipline. All of these changes that you hear about on television, folks, Warren Buffett's not in there talking on television about all the changes he's making. In fact, you know what makes headlines? Whenever Buffett actually makes a change, because he damn near never does. Mm-hmm. Damn near never does. That's why you hear about it. Yes, he's a brilliant investor, but you don't hear it. You haven't heard about the three things that Warren Buffett did last month. Or last quarter. I mean, right, there's, 
There's a reason he has time to play bridge all the time. Yes. Right. <laughs> my, 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 my partner, John Washington, called it masterful inactivity and benign neglect were the best ways to make money as an investor. Masterful inactivity and benign neglect. That's brilliant. Uh, Jenny Harrington is CEO of Gilman Hill Advisors. As a contributor on CNBC and as my great buddy, we've learned so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you, Michael. I'm writing down that masterful inactivity and benign neglect. That's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. John Washington was brilliant. Folks, that's it for another forecast where we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back again next week. Give you the best insights we can from some of the best people on Wall Street and in Washington and indeed around the world. I'm so grateful to each of you for listening. Please share us on your social media from Naples, Florida. Again, with a very grateful heart to each of you. I'm Michael Farr. See you next week. That's it for this edition of The Farcast. Thanks to you, our listeners, and your continued support. We hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it for you. A big thank you to this week's guests, Jim Murio, Matt Leffingwell, and from Gilman Hill Advisors, Jenny Harrington. The podcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Google Podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in the podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained for the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only 
The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC or any of its affiliates. Bar Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.